Hello, this is John Bueri, and welcome to another episode of Community Intelligence, where we explore how leaders engage and build community. For this episode, I met with California Secretary of State, Alex Padilla, who is revolutionizing California's democratic infrastructures. We focus our conversation on Secretary Padilla's innovative efforts to get all Californians to vote and take advantage of the voice our democracy affords them. You'll hear about the Secretary's roles and responsibilities, the history of the office, and how Secretary Padilla is paving the way for the future of our democracy. I'm sitting here with Secretary of State for California, Alex Padilla, who's been in this position elected since 2014 and sworn in in January 2015. So he's been in this job for over five years now. And we're here talking about what it takes to be Secretary of State for California and work with the people of California. Because there's a lot we could talk about in, with the Secretary of State about working in the politics and working in the government. But really, this is a very public serving, and by public I mean people serving position. You are, in, you are holding the trust of the people in many aspects uh, of their life as it relates to voting, as it relates to records. Um, and so you have a very uh, important role in interacting with people and you can't just tell them what to do, you gotta work with them. <laughs> so I'm really excited to sit with you and talk with you about what it takes to be part of a community of 40 million people in California. You're statewide elected, so you're, you're representing all of them and really serve them in this role. So tell me, let's start off with, what is the Secretary of State's responsibility here in California and what was the office like when you arrived? Like what, what was it five years ago? Sure, and I appreciate that that's the first question because uh, the office of Secretary of State, right, the duties and responsibilities of a Secretary of State is probably one of the lesser understood uh, constitutional offices in the state. Clearly everybody knows who the, who the governor is and what the governor does, the attorney general, the treasurer, that's pretty straightforward, superintendent of public instruction, but Secretary of State, like what is that? Uh, unlike a federal Secretary of State that deals with you know international diplomacy and crises at times, uh, a state Secretary of State has uh, a different set of responsibilities. Uh, if people know anything about the Secretary of State's office, they think elections. Right. Uh, and that's arguably the most important part of the job, uh, overseeing elections in California, uh, no longer sort of the, the proper administration of elections, but uh, we've actually worked in the last couple of years to change the official duties and responsibilities. So that Secretary of State now has to commit to increasing participation rates, right? Heaven forbid. Wow. It's not just, uh, okay, let's make sure everything is done by the book, but to increase participation rates on voter registration side, on the voting side, uh, especially in areas of California where participation has been lower. And we can get into that during yeah. the course of our dialogue. Uh, if you look at my budget or the number of personnel you know, positions, uh, the largest function of the Secretary of State is actually what we call the Business Programs Division. All the business filings that uh, people are required to do with the state, whether you're uh, you know, starting a new business uh, or maintaining your statements of information, entrepreneurs and accountants know what that is, uh, or uh, you know, even a nonprofit, for example. You know, are you forming an LLC or an LLP? Uh, those sorts of things. Those we process millions of transactions throughout the course of the year. Uh, another part of the office is uh, the uh, political reform division. So, uh, you know, the Secretary of State is not the FPPC, right? They're the enforcement, they're the compliance arm. And that's arm the, the fair political 
Practices Business Commission. commission. Uh, you know, they're the enforcement compliance arm when it comes to campaign finance. Uh, but by state law, all state candidates and campaigns have to submit to the Secretary of State regular reports of where they're raising money from, how they're spending their campaign money, and it's our job to make that information publicly available. Uh, and we can talk about our efforts in, in that space as too. Uh, one of the neat uh, aspects of the Secretary of State's office that most people overlook is uh, the state archives. The first law passed by the first legislature of modern California uh, named the Secretary of State as the custodian of the state's official records and documents. So uh, kind of like that movie National Treasure with mm -hmm. Nicolas Cage. Yep. Uh, I, uh, Are you in the catacombs of the Capitol? Catacombs, <laughs> and, and yes, I'm not trying to steal the California Constitution, <laughs> uh, but we do have one. In fact, we have two. One is in English, one is in Spanish. Wow. We're a very diverse state from day one, so there's a lot of neat uh, California history that most people may not be aware of, and it's our job not just to protect and preserve the records, but you know, I have an equal emphasis on making it publicly available. Yeah. And we have a variety of initiatives to uh, utilize technology platforms to make it more accessible to the general public. So uh, a lot going on in the Secretary of State's office. When uh, I first decided to run for Secretary of State, it was with a couple of uh, you know, visions and motivations. Uh, you know, at the time, if you go back to you know, five, six years ago, uh, it was soon after the Shelby v. Holder decision by the United States Supreme Court fancy legal talk for the opening of the floodgates on the, the, the modern uh, age voter suppression efforts that we hear about across the country, right? The purging of voter rolls, voter ID laws, reduction of polling places, you know, the, the states that are making it harder for eligible people to register to vote or to actually cast a ballot. You know, I didn't think those efforts would ever gain traction in California, but it did provide California an opportunity to be the counterexample, right? How do we modernize elections uh, in a way that makes it easier for eligible people to register to vote, make it easier for registered voters to cast a ballot while maintaining the security and integrity of the elections. Which in recent years has become even more scrutinized because of right. what we saw happen in 2016. Oh, and, and so you know, when I was running five years ago, right. uh, because the office had kind of been like over overlooked or uh, hadn't really been in the spotlight since... Maybe underappreciated? Underappreciated. Uh, since the 2000 presidential election, right. uh, even my closest friends would ask me, like, really? That's what you want to run for? Uh, and I would articulate what, you know, what I thought needed to happen with the office. You know, I'm thankful for the opportunity. I think 2016 changed the game, right? With all the, the chatter about hacking, rigging of elections, foreign interference, et cetera, clearly the spotlight is on elections now in a way that it hasn't been in a long, long time. So we're working feverishly, yes, to register more voters, yes, to increase registration rates and participation rates, but also to make sure that uh, we protect, you know, the, the, the foundation of our democracy, free and fair elections from not just foreign interference, but even some domestic threats, cyber and otherwise. So uh, the job is in a spotlight like it hasn't been in a long, long time and much more appreciated, uh, to use your words, uh, uh, as it should have been all along. So uh, so let's take let's take voting for a minute, just in elections, because I think that's probably the biggest responsibility, the biggest publicly right. known activity. Uh, as you said, you know, when you came in, people sort of elections happened, <laughs> and people voted or not, uh, and then you came in. So, what are some of the the key things that inspired you from 
your experience as a voter, as a, a representative. You know, we know that before you started in this role, you were elected at the state senate level. You were the president of the Los Angeles City Council, having been elected in 1999 to the city council seat at, you were 26? Correct. I remember where I was at 26. I was not running for office. Um, I mean, not many 26-year-olds do it, and you were there and, and won. And at 28, you were seated as the first Latino uh, city council president um, and the yo youngest city council president. Correct. So you've got experience with voters asking them for your vote, uh, asking, for, asking them to vote for you, asking you for their vote. Um, what what draw, drove you to say, okay, what are the changes we're going to make? How did you look at that experience and who you knew and the experience you had to say, here's how we need to make changes to increase the way people felt comfortable voting right. and, and, and uh, register for voting? And protecting the, the public confidence exactly. in our electoral process. Exactly. So how does that, how did well, that come I, to be? I'm going to take you back even a few years prior to my election to city council because okay. I think there's a variety of uh, points of view and experiences that I've had that I bring to the table in this capacity. You know, first... You know, why am I in politics and government to begin with, right? Public service is right. a career I've chosen and I'm passionate about, but that wasn't always the case. As you recall, I graduated from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology with a mechanical engineering degree of all things. So I had to go from engineering to politics. You know, doesn't happen very often. <laughs> it doesn't happen very <laughs> often. My short answer is, well, hey, engineers are trained to solve problems. Isn't that what politicians are supposed to be doing? Uh, but the true life story includes, you know, freshly back from college, uh, struggling to uh, maintain an engineering job in the aerospace industry in Southern California in the early 90s. If you recall, there was a big recession at the time, but also the political climate I came home to. In November of 1994, there was a measure on the ballot in the state of California that we now refer to as Proposition 187. And for folks who may not recall Proposition 187, you, know, you take the national political climate today uh, some of the stuff that we hear from one of the political parties uh, about immigration, about immigrants, that, believe it or not, was the political climate in the state of California. You know, Prop 187, anti-immigrant scapegoating measure, passed. Wasn't even close. It even passed in Los Angeles County. Uh, and as a proud son of immigrants, someone who, had, you know, was living the American dream. My parents came here, worked hard. You know, sacrificed tremendously for my brother, my sister, and I just to have an opportunity, a good education, freshly home with a degree from one of the best engineering schools in the world, only to be told through political rhetoric that you know our country's going downhill, and it's because of people like my parents, no way. Uh, I learned immediately that we needed to engage politically, right? Otherwise, our community would continue to be attacked and scapegoated, and so you know while. The, the Northeast San Fernando Valley, the, the geographic community I was born in, isn't a place that historically is known for wealth and campaign contributions. I learned in high school government class that, hey, we live in a democracy, we have the right to vote, and when we go vote, all voices are equal. Mm -hmm. And uh, But only if you participate, right? Your political voice is not heard unless you participate. Born here, proud citizen, registered to vote, became active. Uh, and because of that engineering background, I was decent at math, <laughs> and I know that, hey, 10 votes are louder than one, right. and 100 votes are louder than 10. So as much as it's important for me to vote as an individual, true power in American politics lies in numbers. And so I set that engineering degree aside and just jumped into politics with both feet from 
managing campaigns to working as a staffer before ever running for office. Um, and so I share that because now as Secretary of State, I get to oversee elections, administer elections, not just in a way that's safe, secure, but more inclusive, right? So when we make it easier for eligible people to register, we're strengthening our democracy by making it more inclusive and representative of the people. Uh, so I bring the experience as a young person, sort of uh, whose eyes open to the importance of political involvement, uh, as a staff person, as a candidate, as a voter, as an office holder, as a local government official, as a state legislature, and now, yes, as, as Secretary of State, and toss in the engineer degree for good measure because technology is constantly evolving, creating tremendous opportunity to advance uh, strengthening our democracy, but also threats. You know, we mentioned cybersecurity earlier, uh, and it's important to have a proficiency in all that to do this job to the best of, of our ability. So, uh, you know, we bring all that to the Office of Secretary of State and start with the basics. How can we increase voter registration rates, for example? Well, some people say it's really not that difficult if you want. Go down to the post office, go down to the library, fill out a form. Uh, and granted, that's how I registered right. on paper. But if technology exists today that helps us facilitate the registration of more eligible citizens, first of all, that's a federal mandate. It's in the National Voter Registration Act uh, that goes back more than 20 years. Uh, and number two, you look at participation numbers, right? Registration rates, turnout rates. We know we have a lot of work to do because we're far from that 100% participation. What, uh, give us an example of how in our last statewide election or a recent election percentage. Well, the, the very year that I was elected Secretary of State, 2014, November 2014, amongst registered voters, turnout was 42.5%. So less than half that were registered to right. vote, not yep. eligible, but registered. Right, more than half of the el of the registered voters sat it out. That's not good for us. No. And that doesn't include the five to six million people who were eligible were not even registered. No. So we clearly have a lot of work to do. You know, f you know flash forward uh, several years later, the 2018 election, just four years later, we added a couple of million people to the voter rolls. We're taking you know, big bites out of the eligible but unregistered population. And even with the addition of a couple million voters, turnout was 64.5%. So turnout was way up, nearly double the number of ballots cast in a four-year time period. So we're making tremendous progress, still have a lot, a lot more to go. So some of the highlights of how we've strengthened the, the registration side. California was one of the first states to allow for online voter registration. Again, with all the security measures and protections against fraud in place, uh, we make it easier for people to register to vote online. So anyone eligible to register could go online and register if they have access to the internet and a computer. Exactly. Register to vote.ca.gov takes about two minutes uh, if you have a driver's license or a state ID, because that's how we pull your, your signature for voter registration purposes. Uh, so you can do it on paper or you can do it online. Uh, we launched a uh, pre-registration initiative in California. So you don't have to wait till you're 18 anymore. You know, we know young people, especially right now, are very animated. They're paying attention to right. politics. At the age of 16 or 17, you can pre-register to vote. We'll keep your data uh, sort of in, a, in hiatus, but activate your registration on your 18th birthday. So if you pre-register to vote, you're good. You don't have to do it again when you turn 18. Is that something that you pioneered, or is that something that had been done other places? It was a it, it was a concept floating around in a couple of states. Uh, when I was in the state senate, I voted on the bill uh, to put that into law in California. But 
immediately upon being elected as secretary is my responsibility to implement. implement that. Uh, and just uh, you know, a great little story I'm proud of, uh, the initial law was envisioned as just an additional box on the voter registration card. So 16 Samuels can fill it out, check the box, and do it that way. Well, when we launched uh, automatic voter registration, we made sure that it included the pre-registration opportunity. Uh, and the way that works is when people go to the DMV to apply for or to renew their driver's license or their state ID, or even if they're changing their address for their driver's license, if they're eligible, they're automatically registered to vote unless they choose to opt out. That has been a game changer. California was the second state in the nation to adopt automatic voter registration. And uh, in the first year alone, we've added a million people to the rolls through automatic registration, again, taking big slices out of the eligible but unregistered population. And equally important and powerful is more than three million previously eligible voters were able to update their information. Because when people move or whatever, you know, you, you want to get your driver's license with your new address, but they forget to update their voter registration. So now we have much more accurate, cleaner, up-to-date voter rolls, which is good all the way around. Uh, so when it, let's go back to that component about pre-registration. This is a, this is a, I remember when I was 16, I was excited to, you know, I knew everything about the world, right? Because I was 16. I knew everything. <laughs> we all did, right? 16-year-olds know everything. But there are 16-year-olds who are actively engaged in the political process, um, and this is exciting for them. Did you have an opportunity to work with those uh, pre-eligible uh, voters as in developing the program and working to get their input in the way you might roll it out or, or engage with them? Or after the fact, is there, is there work you're doing with those 16 and 17 year olds to continue to refine and expand the program. No, absolutely, and, and it's a big, uh, working with young uh, voters and potential voters is a big priority for us because, again, going back to the engineering mind, if you look at who is it that's eligible to register but haven't registered, uh, disproportionately, it's you know working class communities, it's communities of color, but it's young people Right, millennials represent the biggest potential voting block in America, and in California, no is no exception. Uh, but their political voice is not realized because registration rates are lower and voting rates are lower amongst that group. So uh, uh, we've spent a lot of time developing initiatives and resources for young people specifically, whether it's this pre-registration program, so you can pre-register on paper or online right. or automatically through the DMV. But we also put toolkits together because it's, look, I remember when I was 16 too. If I got an official postcard from the California Secretary of State, I wasn't paying it any money, <laughs> right? And the reason we want to talk to young people at 16 and 17 is, look, chances are they may be getting, going in to get their driver's license. So there's an opportunity there. But your senior year when you're turning 18, my mind was on the prom and financial aid applications for college, right? I'm not thinking about registering to vote. So, uh, we want to emphasize those opportunities. The best organizers of young people are not, you know, politicians. Uh, <laughs> really? It's, uh, it's other young people. Really? <laughs> so, you know, as we're promoting the opportunity to pre-register to vote, we have a, a committed, dedicated portal, you know, highschool.sos.ce.gov that has pre-registration information, toolkits on how to organize a voter registration drive on your high school campus or in your community. You know, and other tools there, uh, and we've seen that just flourish and blossom everywhere throughout the state. More than 400,000 young people have pre-registered to vote in California since we launched, and it's going strong. A couple thousand each and every week. Uh, 
Um, you know, and that's at the high school level. At the college level, same thing. We're out there not just providing the opportunity, but physically visiting campuses up and down the state. Uh, we launched a, uh, a, a ballot bowl competition. With a all ballot the bowl? Ballot bowl. Like right? the Super Bowl Like for the voting? Super Bowl, like the Rose Bowl, okay. like the, you know, the Orange Bowl, the Fiesta <laughs> Bowl. There's, com there's campus pride and competitiveness when it comes to collegiate athletics. Let's try to capture some of that and apply that to civic engagement. Okay. You know, uh, over the years we had heard, oh, UC Santa Barbara does a good job of reaching out to, you know, students to register into it, et cetera. Well, let's get a little bit of a competition and rivalry going. Uh, and, and we did in the first year alone, 2018, close to 10,000 college students either registered or updated their registration through all the activities happening uh, throughout the who state. Won, who won the bowl in 18? Uh, in 2018, the winner was <laughs> Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Okay. Uh, you know, Fullerton had a sh strong showing, <laughs> Santa Barbara had a strong showing, and that was the first year alone. So. Uh, a lot of the campuses that didn't win are now extra motivated to do even better uh, next go around. Different categories of winners overall. What, what's the trophy look numbers, like? Uh, percentage registration increase and just the creative <laughs> ideas. So what's the trophy? I mean, right? You know, you know what's it's, what's the the Super Bowl trophy of the voting bowl? Or the I think a very modest. <laughs> Stanley Cup. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> right? It's gold colored, <laughs> nice. but it's a point of pride. Absolutely. Um, so that's, that's really interesting that you're able to get onto campus in the place and recognize that you, n number one, I think it's, it's strong for a leader that's working in communities to recognize that they may not be the best messenger, nor may they be the best organizer, that it takes people in that community to have the tools to be the messenger and the organizer to get the outcome of a stronger community. I mean, that's what all of this does, is builds stronger community. Yes, they're registered to vote. Yes, now they're maybe a little more politically aware, but that just spills out into the rest of their civic engagement, right? right. Understanding what the world around them looks like and how they might have an impact on that. And that's really powerful, especially in a state with this many people, right? 40 million people. How right. do you wrap your head around that? I mean, when you, when you think about what our goals are about engagement, I mean, how many universities do we have? I, c I don't even know off the top of my head, but I know that there's, you know, hundreds probably across the state. When we look at these numbers, put your engineering hat on, right? The engineer's hat. How do you sort of grapple with and divide and say, how can we get three million more, five million more, uh, not just to register, but now to get to the polls? How do you, how do you tackle those numbers at that scale? Yeah, well, uh, you're informed by the numbers. So there's some analysis that goes into not just sort of demographic information by age, by uh, income levels, et cetera, of who is either eligible but unregistered or even registered but doesn't vote every single time, right? right? And that can inform The low propensity voter. Right? Low propensity right. voters, right? From from an old campaign perspective, it's what, you know, five of five voter. That means people who vote five <laughs> times in yeah. five elections, but yeah. you got the two of five voter, yeah. right? What They only vote in presidentials or what is it, right? Uh, and that can help inform. Uh, and so we know that uh, facilitating voter registration is only half the battle. Just because somebody's registered doesn't mean they vote every single time. So what can we do on the voting side to in improve our chances? Uh, you know, the first, uh, while I was running, you know, heard a lot of uh, ideas and suggestions on what other states are doing. My first year in office, we continued our survey of how do other states do it? How do other jurisdictions do it? And so my, uh, while my first in legislative proposal as Secretary of State was automatic voter registration. Uh, and it's been enormously successful. 
the second proposal I submitted was to change how we fundamentally administer elections that yes is more efficient yes is more secure but most importantly is more voter centric it's better for the voter uh, and so it's known as the voters choice act it was approved by the legislature five counties made the transition to the voters choice act in 2018 uh, many many more uh, in 2020 uh, and it looks like this right the old way of voting in california it's, it's not that difficult you can either vote by mail and that's convenient for a lot of people right more than uh, half the state's voters have been voting by mail for several cycles now. Uh, but if you want to vote in person, if you stop and think about it, it's not very user-friendly. You have one designated polling place closest to where you live on election day only from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. You know, for my folks who are retired, right, that's not inconvenient for them. Right. They got time on their hands. For working people, right, what is 9 to 5 anymore? Right. Right, you got to get to work, you got to get home from work, and maybe you're leaving the office at five uh, or whatever your job is. And uh, in a lot of places in California, we have this thing called traffic. Yeah, <laughs> tell me about that. <laughs> that, keep, that keeps you from getting right. home quickly. And you know, if you're like me and a lot of families, you got, maybe you got kids to pick up from school, there's little league practice, you got to get dinner on the table. Now, at the end of a day like that, I got to go stand in line somewhere before eight o'clock. There's got to be a better way, and there is. So, under the Voters' Choice Act, counties that choose to make the transition, here's what the election looks like. Uh, a month before the election, every voter automatically receives their ballot in the mail. Wow. You don't need to request it, you don't need an excuse, every voter automatically receives it. The state of Washington, the state of Oregon, they're all vote by mail only. And turnout has gone up since they made those transitions. I think in California we got one better. Every voter can receive the ballot in the mail and they have options for how to return the ballot. You can return the ballot by mail, Thanks to the governor and the legislature, you don't need uh, a postage uh, to worry about any, anymore, right? You don't need a stamp. Return postage is covered. Uh, every county, the counties are installing what are known as ballot drop boxes, so kind of like a mailbox, but clearly marked for ballots only throughout the county, and any voter can drop their ballot in one of these secure drop boxes anywhere in the county convenient to them in the weeks leading up to the election. And as many people as uh, prefer to vote by mail, there's still a lot of people who prefer to vote in person. That's me. Uh, and <laughs> I want to make sure my ballot gets in the system right there. Right. I and see that, it. And that's my dad, which means it's me too, because guess who takes my dad <laughs> to the polls every election? Uh, but there's, again, there's got to be a better way. And there, there is. With a little bit of technology, we can give every voting location access, not just to the list of voters in that neighborhood, but to the list of all the voters in the county. So what does that mean? That empowers every voter to go to any location in the county convenient to them. Imagine being able to vote close to work or close to where you drop your kids off at school or close to the grocery store or you know whatever the case may be. And there's more. With these vote centers, right? Modern polling places, we call them vote centers, will be open for 11 days up to and including election day. So you can vote the week before. You can vote the day of. You can vote over the weekend. All the people who want Saturday voting, you know, that becomes an option. You can vote anywhere in the county convenient to you, uh, and that's if you didn't vote by mail to begin with. So all these voters' choices uh, facilitate participation by making, you know, giving voters more options of when, where, and how to do it. Uh, the, we had record turnout in the 2018 election, highest turnout for a midterm election since 1982. The five counties that adopted the Voters' Choice Act in 2018 exceeded 
the record statewide turnout. So we, it's not just a good idea that we're crossing our fingers on. We know it works. And now 15 counties uh, throughout the state will be implementing the Voters' Choice Act uh, in 2020. That's not the majority of counties, but it does make up the majority of California voters. Wow. So quickly, these benefits and choices are reaching more and more voters. So we're anticipating record registration and record turnout in 2020. When you talk about turnout, too, and going to the polling place, I know that you've got some initiatives. You know, not everybody is um, always comfortable in a place that's a public place. People might have uh, access and functional needs. They may have uh, a name that doesn't match their appearance. Um, how do you have you dealt with the diversity of California when it comes to volunteers at a polling place that are doing their best <laughs> to protect? You know, they're, they're, I think they're there for. I mean, we couldn't do it without them, the, the local volunteers, right. and they're doing their part for the security and safety, make sure there's no voter fraud by following the instructions they've been given and the rules they've been issued. How have you been working to incorporate the understanding of the diversity of California in the polling place? Because we've talked about a lot of people do like to go to the polls. Right. Uh, you know, in a, in a couple of ways, and a uh, good moment to take a time out and say thank you. Thank you to the 58 county election offices uh, throughout the state of California, from the registrar of voters and the county clerks uh, and their entire staff team, uh, and of course the thousands upon thousands of volunteers that help out on election day, right? Our democracy wouldn't function if it wasn't for those poll workers right. uh, that are committing of their time uh, to the most important exercise in, in our democracy. Uh, but to your question about how, so how do we work with them uh, to ensure that the, the elections are administered appropriately? Uh, and, and specifically about se the Securely and accessibility, and right? Accessibility, right. They, yeah. they go hand in hand. It's not one or the other. Uh, first of all, training, training, training. Uh, so we're constantly both seeking input from advisory committees and working with county officials to make sure that the training for these poll workers uh, is constantly uh, revisited and fresh uh, and representative of new laws, new protections, new procedures, etc. It's one of the uh, benefits, by the way, of the Voters' Choice Act. You know, and when I say we're modernizing the polling places into vote centers, uh, there's a lot of upside to it. Uh, a concern I had initially, and we've heard off and on, is but there's fewer locations, right? If uh, instead of setting up 4,000 polling places and you have, can only go to your own in Los Angeles County, now there's only a thousand locations that raises some eyebrows but it's offset by but you can go any day to any location convenient to you it's going to be better for everybody at the end of the day but by reducing the number of places we're also reducing the number of voting booths you need to order and the number of poll workers that will need to recruit hire and train so all of a sudden counties are in a position to be able to kind of professionalize the operation a little bit by relying more on either county employees or much more experienced regular volunteers, right? They're not struggling to recruit just enough volunteers and have so many first-time volunteers each and every election that are coming up to speed on election law in California and how to assist a voter. So uh, the, the more that the Voters' Choice Act spreads throughout the state, I think that's going to be a, a significant benefit improving the voter experience at the polls. But we never rest, you know, constantly revisiting the previous election. What did we learn? What problems did we detect? How can we make it better next time? Uh, one of the uh, recent announcements we made was a partnership between my office and Equality California. Uh, you know, in, in your question earlier, you talked about what if somebody comes in and from a poll worker perspective 
and their life experience, they see a name and they see an individual and maybe the name and the appearance doesn't match. You know what, that's not their call to make. Right. Uh, whether it's um, fashion and style, whether it's gender identity or presentation uh, or anything else. You know, California uh, is better because of the diversity of our state. We're the most populous state in the nation, the most diverse state in the nation. We represent the largest economy of any state in the nation, you know, but fundamentally when it comes to the, the polling place and the voting booth, you know, voting rights matter to us and we'll fight like hell to defend it. Uh, and, and that means not just making it easier to register, uh, but easier to cast your ballot and a welcoming environment at the polling place for anybody who chooses to vote in person. That's amazing. You know, uh, a couple years ago I partnered with a nonprofit and we did a party at the polls where we brought, <laughs> you know, outside the polls, it, didn't, it wasn't contingent on someone voting, but they were able to um, celebrate with food and music and activities for families around the voting experience on election day. I've always and wondered, why is there a DJ in the voting well, booth? We, I mean, we, we, we had a <laughs> we DJ. We treat it like a library. It, this is very... So you know. ironically, ours was at a library. And we were outside the library. The voting was happening in their community okay. room in Burbank, in California. And we ended up um, just having like a party outside. So people came out and had a good time. And that idea that someone actually was there to say, hey, welcome, you're not even close to the booth yet, right? You're not, you're not filling out your forms yet, but someone's like, welcome here, yeah, yeah, get in line here. It was welcoming, and we told people, you know, we were there sort of at, uh, in partnership with the city and the library to be that welcoming committee and say how exciting it is to vote in a democracy like the United States. Right, and, and so thank you, congratulations. Let's celebrate what yeah, we're all doing. Exactly, here. and it was people were, rea our reaction, the, the reaction we got from people was like, oh, this is awesome, who's paying you to do this? Or, <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 this is just our commitment to our neighbors and our community. It was actually my polling place, so I, I focused on that. Um, and I think it's, it's really the idea that no matter where you come from or what your background is or if you're recently um, natural, uh, recently become a citizen mm -hmm. or if you were born here and you've voted for 70 years, that everybody, as you said at the beginning of our conversation, everybody's vote is equal weighted. Right. There's not more important because you voted for seven elections or you haven't voted in 70 years. Right. It's not, it doesn't make a difference. And I think that it's really interesting that you've you've taken you mentioned that you had advisory committees how do you how do you figure out who to get advice from i mean you got, it's a big state i mean we keep we can overemphasize that you just made a good <laughs> point about its economy it's about its population how do you get the insight to make sure you're not distracted and you're focused but you still get the perspectives you've got an amazing uh, immediate staff that works with you and gives you advice but it, and you've got probably close allies, but how do you really look at 40 million Californians? Right. Well, I, I don't think that's a challenge or, uh, or an opportunity just for the Secretary of State, but you know, frankly, for any public official. Right. Right. It, the same would apply to the governor. Mm -hmm. Same oh. would apply to the Speaker of the Assembly or any legislator for that matter. Uh, same applies to a mayor, a council member, a county supervisor. Uh, it's part of the job. Uh, you know, it's it's when you're on the campaign trail seeking votes, there's an opportunity to build a relationship with constituents, but that doesn't end on election day. Right. Uh, after election day, whether it's a public comment period during a city council meeting or uh, anything else, uh, there should be constant opportunity for members of the public to try to influence, inform, and engage their representatives. That's that's very, very healthy. Uh, 40 million is a lot of people. <laughs> I can't read 40 million letters a day. No. <laughs> so, uh, so, so it is a bit of a balancing. I have a great staff. We're constantly interacting. And look, 
any community event that I go to, whether it's an official event or I'm at the grocery store, right. there are people who are happy to give me their opinion <laughs> uh, and give me their ideas and uh, either tell me what I'm doing right or tell me what I'm doing wrong. And, and that's good uh, if, to the extent that it helps inform my priorities or decision making. I think that's healthy. Uh, a couple of examples, when I uh, came in as Secretary of State, there was some very informal advisory committees to the Secretary of State, one on accessibility. Right? When, we, when we determine where polling places ought to be, uh, got to make sure that they're accessible uh, to all voters regardless of physical ability. Uh, but it's not just the locations. Maybe it's the equipment itself, right? What if somebody is blind? What if somebody is deaf? What if somebody is, but they're citizens eligible to vote, they should be able to vote uh, privately and independently as well. So even our, the mechanisms and equipment for voting has to reflect that access uh, commitment that we have. Uh, another advisory committee uh, was for a language, right? California is a large and diverse state, hundreds of languages spoken throughout the state. So whether it's translation of the ballot and the voter information guide or other elections related materials, look, I wish I knew all those languages, but I don't. So how do we get that input uh, from others? I felt that uh, structure was so important, we formalized it. So we sponsored legislation to uh, institutionalize those advisory committees to the Secretary of State, uh, and we're considering, you know, d doing more. Uh, you know, whether it's through Native American voting rights because of that unique history mm -hmm. in in the country and the state of California, for example. Uh, so there's a big role for advisory committees to play, in addition to staff, in addition to write your legislator, mm -hmm. in addition to, uh, you know, it's okay to. Uh, interrupt me at the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> so before we leave voting, because there's some other things I do want to ask you about, I want to ask you a macro question, both as a public official for decades and someone whose responsibility it is to get people engaged. What are your strategies that you use to engage the unengaged, the apathetic, the people who feel like voting doesn't matter? What are some of the things you, I mean, you talked about a lot of the stuff you're doing to, to modernize and to s make secure and make accessible, but how do you reach that guy? You know, the Uber driver, last time I was in Sacramento, <laughs> he's like, I don't vote, it doesn't matter, so I don't vote. And I'm like, you're living in the capital, like, and you don't, you're not engaged. You're not. How, how do you, what are some of the things you can do as, a, as an expert in people, because that's the, the work you've done for so many years, what are the things that you do to get people engaged and to reawaken maybe their their value as a contributing citizen civically engaged? Right. Well, there's a, a, a few things. You know, first, if there was a magic pill uh, that uh, you know made it easy to just inspire people to want to get engaged and they, and they recognize immediately the value of their participation in democracy, then you know it'd be a bestseller. Right. Uh, there's candidates that come around or issues that come around from time to time that really animate people. Uh, you know, the 2008 presidential election, for example, that was the high watermark for turnout in California because of this Senator Barack Obama who was running for president, right. among other, you know, factors at that time. Uh, there's the mechanics of it all, right? We talked about what other states are doing that are putting up unnecessary barriers, in my opinion, to participation, what we're trying to facilitate. So giving people more options uh, for registration and for voting while maintaining the security mm -hmm. and integrity uh, I think you know moving aggressively in that is key. Uh, we talked earlier about me knowing full well that government officials, you know, that that's not going to convince everybody. So who else do we engage in the conversation? Uh, we have a program known as Democracy at Work, where we work we partner with both private and public sector employers uh, to 
help us get the word out, right? Through their voices and through their communications platforms. Uh, don't forget to register. Here's the link. Don't forget to, 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 to vote on a nonpartisan basis. Mm -hmm. A couple of examples. You mentioned an Uber driver. Right. So starting in 2018, we partnered with Uber, where uh, both for drivers and riders in those uh, days leading up to the voter registration deadline uh, and election day, when you opened the app, you know, as you're scrolling, tracking your right, et cetera, you were getting reminders. Are you registered to vote? Wow. If not, you know, click here and it would take you to our voter registration link. You know, or uh, you know, tomorrow's election day, do you know where to vote? You know, click here, you can find your polling places or your vote centers. Those types of tools that that's not a postcard that goes from right. the Secretary of State's <laughs> office uh, to folk. That's not just utilizing maybe Uber's platform, but their relationship with their drivers and their customers. Uh, a couple of other fun examples. You know, I had a chance to throw out the first pitch uh, at Petco Park in San Diego. While well, I'm a Dodgers fan, uh, you know, we're out there pitching voter registration <laughs> on National Voter <laughs> Registration Day, uh, and that's great for San Diego. But we really did the same thing with the Benesto Nuts a couple of years ago, a farm team right. in the Central Valley. So you know, we try to get creative with our partnerships and our outreach initiatives. It's not just speeches, although I'm happy to do those as well. <laughs> uh, Starbucks has been a great partner for the last couple of election cycles. Uh, they have put up uh, posters above the coffee sugar station on the community boards with, uh, again, links and information to voter registration, don't forget to vote uh, information. Uh, so utilizing unique relationships and opportunities like that. We have specific MOUs with the UC system, the CSU system, and community colleges up and down the state communicating to anybody who works for those colleges and universities, and of course to students. There are communication platforms and reminders of key deadlines, don't forget to vote. Uh, LA Metro has been a partner, you know, giving a signage on buses and trains and stations uh, to get the word out for people who, you know, may not have a car, they commute on public transit for a living, you know, because they're important too. Anybody and everybody's important. So in addition to traditional media, social media, you know, we try to uh, take advantage of as many of those partnerships as possible. Partnerships is key then. Absolutely. In this work. It's like 40 million people, you don't reach them one at a time. you <laughs> got to reach it through partners. Right. Um, I want to talk to you about um, the state archive for a second. Yes. Because here's something that is really valuable because it is our history. And without our history, we can't look to a future. Um, we have to understand the, the good things and the bad things that we've done in the past to make sure we don't repeat mistakes and we can improve on things that maybe weren't done correctly and build on successes, right? That's the, the nature of our history. And an archive, sometimes misunderstood or underappreciated, uh, is really that formal record. But it isn't just pieces of paper, it's artifacts, it's the, it's the history, the, the narrative history of a place or an item or an issue. California's got a long history. It's got a tremendous uh, history in terms of the varied populations that have come and left or come and continue to grow here. How do you make that interesting and accessible? <laughs> I mean, if you're trying to engage the public, I know that most cities have archives, a lot of historical societies and museums have archives. In Los Angeles County, there's an, there's an archives network uh, based out of USC that talks about the history of this place, which is you know a good part, but not the entire state, uh, but a good part of it. What are the things that you're working on to get people interested? And, and, and what do you hear from people? What's yeah. the value to them if you're not researching the, the history of, you know, AB65, you know, specific bill, per right. se? No, and it's probably the most exciting examples of uh, modernization right. uh, of the office, right? You asked in the beginning, what was this 
office like when I first got here, you know, talked about voting rights when it was going on across the country, but as an agency and a, a, of state government, I felt there was a lot of modernization that was necessary. We talked, you know, reforms in the election space, in the business programs division. Everything was very paper-based when, right. I, when I got here, and we're trying to automate that so entrepreneurs and business owners can conduct their business online. I appreciate I, that as an entrepreneur. And I have to come into the, <laughs> into the state you know, office and stand in line and right. file paperwork uh, through the uh, political reform division, right? Not just electronic filing of those uh, finance reports, but public access being more reliable, more intuitive, more informative of that uh, you know, money in politics uh, databases. But the archives is exciting because look, we, we know why it's important to maintain the record for research purposes, right. for legislative purposes, et cetera. But this belongs to the people, the people of California. The, and, and the press is interested from time to time too. And it shouldn't require you to take a physical trip to Sacramento to make an appointment, let it, you know, the archivist team know what you're looking for and you can maybe look but don't touch or got to bring it back in, in a few hours. Uh, we reached out to this startup company in the Bay Area called Google. I think I've heard of them. <laughs> to uh, work, once again, in partnership right. uh, to uh, digitize more of our collection and upload it and make it available online. Imagine that. Wow. Uh, and while that can be overwhelming, right, if you just put up millions of documents right. or artifacts or whatever uh, without curating it, it might be interesting for a minute, but uh, making it user-friendly and more engaging uh, if you're able to curate it. Uh, so aside from you know, the data that goes along with each of the images, uh, well more than a dozen exhibits now that we've curated and are available online, either through our website or the Google Cultural Institute platform. Uh, exhibits about you know, the history of the Secretary of State's office, for example, or uh, the building of the Bay Bridge. Uh, or, um, you know, fascinating. If you look at California history at the beginning, when, as California became a state. So this is all since 1850, right? It's 1849, 1850. 1850. You know, what was going on in what's now the United States of America at the time? Well, the gold rush, that was right. a big impetus for a big population influx. Uh, but it was also a national debate still going about slavery. Slave states versus non-slave states and new states you know, coming in under what terms, uh, and a civil war. Uh, there were Californians that fought in the civil war. And I'm, I'm telling the story because there's an elections connection here, right? Just as there is today, uh, men and women in uniform, uh, domestically or serving abroad around election time, we go out of our way to ensure that they can still cast their ballot in an election, right? They're fighting for our democracy, you know, they shouldn't have to choose between serving the nation or participating in a democracy. Same question was raised back then. Californians that are going to be off uh, serving in the Civil War, that was what that was the impetus for the development of vote by mail. Really? All the way back to the early California days. Right? So how do we capture that story right. into an exhibit through what we have in the state's archives for public benefit. Uh, so uh, encourage people to go onto the state archives webpage and uh, look through the collections there, old photographs, old artifacts. Uh, one do of the- uh, Do you have a favorite artifact? Uh, and, and like all your children, right? You, how do you pick you gotta, one you favorite? Gotta pick, you gotta pick, you know, I'm constantly fascinated still by 
the original California Constitution. Right? California didn't come out of nowhere. Right. Uh, it, it was uh, what we know today as California. It was part of Mexico prior to statehood in the United States. It was part of Spain prior to that. And of course, there's a tremendous Native American indigenous history to California that is not sufficiently told. Right. Uh, and so we're working in partnership uh, with tribal leaders and others to try to come up with ways to do that better. Uh, using what we have in the archives and other partner resources. Uh, the one that's tremendously popular every time we reference it is, like as I mentioned, the original California Constitution. Uh, because of the Constitution itself and the process uh, to it, uh, go back to uh, you know Monterey, California, where the capital, the first California right. capital right. was, you can go to the same room where the Constitutional Convention was held, wow. where they were debating. Uh, and try to feel that environment, right? In the era of Hamilton, the musical, and, <laughs> and, and refound, newfound respect for the founding fathers and what it took to, to, to create the country through the Declaration of Independence, the revolution, the crafting of a constitution, et cetera. You know, similar story state by state, including California, where some of the leaders of the Mexican forces were at the table helping devise the new California constitution. Really? And the fact that there's the, con the, the, Calif the, the, excuse me, the, the English constitution and the Spanish proclamation, they go hand in hand. So it wasn't just uh, a, a translation of the document. No. It was, a, it was two documents. And, and so we have both in the archives. We display both from time to time. Of course, it's up digitally mm -hmm. uh, for anybody to peruse. I just think it's fascinating because of all the history that is sort of behind the scenes of those two documents. Uh, you know, the archives include, yes, copies of every bill that's been signed and passed into law. So if you know, government and politics geek. Yes, we have the original, you know, Prop 13 language, <laughs> or you know, the environment, the the uh, the acts that were signed into law, whether it's to protect the coastline or air quality or you know things of that nature. Um, some of the more intriguing, you know, there's uh, not because they were official uh, state property at the time, but uh, it was the California archives were entrusted with a lot of the um, Robert Kennedy assassination mm, interesting. Uh, items from the pistol that Sirhan Sirhan used, wow. uh, the clothes he was wearing that evening because of the investigations that took place uh, after the fact. And now that still continues to inform California to this day that you know, California Highway Patrol has a dignitary protection section for the protection of a you know, constitutional officers, sort of like the Secret Service, you know, that didn't exist when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, mm. right? That's one of the things that spawned with the Secret Service that we know today. So kind of replaying what happened at the Ambassador Hotel that night, you know, what went right, what went wrong, and very wrong helps inform, you know, even public policy and public safety to this day. Besides online, you ever think of doing the Secretary of State Archives Roadshow across <laughs> California with these artifacts and different uh, cultural institutions? Is there an exhibit in the works? Uh, we, we, we have kicked around a few ideas from time <laughs> to time. Some of the items are a little bit more sensitive absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. to travel with. Um, but uh, one of the things that we are taking on the road uh, are archives in partnership with the National Archives. Oh, great. This year is the centennial of women's right to vote. So summarizing the suffrage movement uh, and bringing items on display, not just to Sacramento, but to Los Angeles and other places in between is something that we have in store for the year. Great, great. So before we, before we wrap, um, you got a big job. You're working on modernization. You have term limits. Mm -hmm. So you've got three more years still. Three more years. 
what's the future hold for California in 10 years? You know, do we see, with the work you're doing and you're going to do in the next couple of years, can it be sustained if you're not in the role? You know, what, what's that, what, what happens when you don't have someone who, can, who understands that this is people-focused first and not about bureaucracy-focused or institution-focused? What, what happens? Yeah. Uh, I like to think that some of what, a lot of what we put in place uh, is definitely sustainable, and, and I'll give a couple of examples. Uh, number one, you know, I mentioned automatic, um, among other efforts, automatic voter registration. Right. Uh, the reasons I think that that's so powerful is if you're eligible to vote in America today, but you're not registered, you don't even get the state voter information guide. If you're eligible to vote in America today, but not registered, the county doesn't send you the sample ballot. Right? If you're eligible to, to, to vote but not registered, chances are you do not have candidates and campaigns you know, knocking on your door or calling you during dinner. Right. right. So just the sheer systematic adding of eligible voters to the rolls creates that activity. Now all of a sudden, okay, it may not be overwhelmingly influential, but you can't say you never got the voter. You can't say you didn't know. Right. right? You're going to get the minimum, hey, there's an election coming up. Here's what's on the ballot. Here's where and when you can go cast your ballot. But I think it creates much more of the campaign outreach uh, and at least maybe conversation amongst neighbors, within family, in the workplace about what's going on. That's got to have a good long-term effect on civic awareness uh, and dialogue, uh, hopefully conduct right. uh, and engagement. So you know, I do think some of these initiatives that we put in place will have definite long-term uh, uh, benefits. The uh, uh, other thing is, you know, when we, we ran the bill, sponsored the bill to add some language to the duties and responsibilities of Secretary of State, very much under the radar, nobody caught it, there was no headlines, uh, but I think it was profoundly important. Uh, I mentioned when I came in, the job of the Secretary of State on the election side as the Chief Elections Officer was simply to, okay, oversee the proper conduct of, or, uh, of admi administration of elections. But that, there's, there was no requirement for a Secretary of State to go out and do better, right? Get more people registered, increase participation rates. I mean, I come in with that philosophy. I think it's the public expectation that whoever Secretary of State would do that, but it was not a mandate. Today, it is. And so whoever comes after me or whoever comes after he or she uh, may have different philosophies, but unless that law is ever changed, the legislature now has an opportunity to bring that person into a hearing and say, the statute says you're supposed to be doing this and hold the future secretaries of state accountable for whether they are or whether they aren't, and if they are, how. Uh, so again, very subtle, but I think profound, and we're sort of leaving those uh, thumbprints and fingerprints and footprints and all kinds of prints uh, behind to change uh, how this office goes about its work. So what w word of advice or word of caution do you give someone who's trying to either inspire change or has a responsibility to make change in a community to increase engagement? What's the, what's the, what's the advice you give them? Maybe it's your, you know, your, the people who come after you, mm -hmm. your successors. What do you give them as advice in terms of grappling with the issue of engagement? Yeah, uh, you know, it's uh, got to do it on all fronts. Uh, yes, you know, I've given examples as we've talked about using public policy and the legislative process to make some change. Uh, we've talked about, okay, well, communications and media, right, traditional media, mm -hmm. social media, and otherwise. Uh, 
and as powerful as those tools can be, I'm still convinced there's no substitute for personal engagement, right? I can tweet all day long, uh, but when I still go to a, a high school anywhere in California to talk to young people about the importance, the, the response is tremendous, right? That doesn't just happen on its own. So you, you got to do it. You got to do it everywhere and you got to engage others in doing it as well. Cool. Well, I want to move on to our lightning round to close us out. Uh -huh. I've got eight questions for you. Just one word or so answers, right? Nothing. Don't think about it too much. Don't explain it. Just go with it. <laughs> And, and don't worry about making enemies by answering these questions. Coffee is the first question. No, no, what do I have for breakfast? No, no, no. <laughs> who is a leader who has influenced you in your work? Ed Royball. What book has changed the way you think about the role of community in your work? Rage for Justice. What local restaurant do you always bring friends to when they visit Los Angeles? And conversely, in Sacramento. In Los Angeles. Um, La Sirenita. Great Mexican seafood in San Fernando Valley. Uh, in Sacramento, uh, Mayawel. What's the first place you turn to for information when you're working in a new community, either geographic or interest group? Where do you, how do you, what's the place you start to look for information? Uh, you know, seeking out whether it's an elected official or other recognized leader in the area. To you, <laughs> let's see if we can get a one-word answer or a short answer on this one. To you, what makes California unique and exciting? Diversity. Right, great. What advice would you give 25-year-old you? That was a pivotal a year for you, right? Yeah. Uh, don't be shy. And what was the best career decision you ever made? Getting married. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Not as a career decision, no, no, as but a life decision. But it's, a life, but it's a career decision, right? If you didn't marry the right person, you wouldn't be able to do what you're doing. No, it's, uh, I think, look, it, it made me a better person, which I think makes me a better servant. Great. And so far, finally, so far, what has been your proudest professional moment? And you got to look back 20, yeah, 30 years. Th there's a, a lot to choose from. Uh, the runner-up might be uh, being one of the uh, presenters uh, at the invitation of President Obama at the White House on the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Voting Rights Act. Um, but number one would probably be the, the ribbon-cutting, the opening, the dedication of the Discovery Cube of Los Angeles because it was uh, more than 15 years uh, from the idea of a state-of-the-art children's museum in the San Fernando Valley to serve all of Los Angeles that people told me time and again, it'll never happen, it'll never happen, there's no way. It's open, it's been open for five years now, and it's been a tremendous success. Great, well thank you Secretary Padilla for your years of service, but for also sitting down and sharing your insights about how you deal and work and inspire community to be more civically engaged. Absolutely, thank Thanks you, so let's, let's do this again sometime. Sure. Thanks for listening to Community Intelligence, and for more information on this and other episodes, visit our website at stratoscope.com. At Stratoscope, we provide community intelligence services to businesses, nonprofits, and government agencies. Let us know how we can help you.